Housewives crew, the Neil. If you haven't heard the name, I'm so glad I can introduce you to this absolute legend of a makeup artist. And for those of you that are well aware of V and her work and may even consider yourself fans, I hope this episode brings you something new that you may not have heard before. V Neil first came into my life through her work on films like Beetlejuice, Edward Scissorhands, Mrs. Doubtfire, Pirates of the Caribbean, and so many others. But it wasn't until the husband and I started watching the TV show Face Off that I found out who was responsible for the makeup on those films. V is now retired from the film industry, but she has opened an academy, which we'll hear more about in this episode. So on every episode of the Last Socks podcast, I have done the work for you guys and popped any links you might want below in the show notes. So if specific products or tools are mentioned, there'll be a link so you can track it down easily. And then of course, if you ever want to stalk our guests that little bit more and find out all the wild and wonderful projects they're a part of, their IMDb link will be there as well. And guys, don't forget, if you or someone you know has a brand that they would like our listeners to hear about, be sure to shoot me a message about becoming a Last Looks sponsor. What does that mean? Well, you can get your brand mentioned on the podcast and introduce it to hairstylists and makeup artists that work in our industry internationally. Good idea, right? For more details, DM me on Instagram or email info at thelastlookspodcast.com. Easy. My name is Jamie Lee, an LA-based hairstylist working in the film industry, and this is The Last Looks Podcast, a show where I catch up with makeup artists and hairstylists working in the film and television industries around the world. And today on the show, we have makeup artist V. Neil. Okay, on with the show. And now, a word from our sponsor. As a special effects makeup artist, you need the right makeup products to make your characters look absolutely convincing, enthralling, or terrifying to your audiences. That's where Lux Skin FX comes in. Specializing in high-quality makeup for professional makeup artists, Lux Skin FX carries the best special effect makeup supplies available to the entertainment industry today. Choose from their wide selection of high-performance products, including alcohol palettes, drying blood, dirt, and and they even have a small cosmetics collection, all at remarkably affordable prices. Lux Skin FX prides itself on their superior customer service and quick delivery times. Message day or night to ensure you have a seamless shopping experience. Well, what are you waiting for? Bring your characters to life with Lux Skin FX. Sign up today at LuxSkinFX.com for your pro discount and start saving. And now, our feature presentation. Pitch of up. Last looks. Rolling. And action. Welcome to the Last Looks podcast, V. Well, thank you very much. So good to have you here. Okay, so this is where our story begins. I want you to finish this sentence for me, okay? Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) This could go in any direction. Um, (laughs) Once upon a time, there was a little girl named V, and when she grew up, she wanted to be... A makeup artist, always. Always? I love this. (laughs) I was five years old. Wow. So how did you figure that out at five? How did you know it was a thing? Well, I knew it was a thing because my next door neighbor was a makeup artist and Uh, his daughter and I were best friends. So every Halloween he would make us up and I thought, this is the coolest thing ever. Yeah. 
and I want to do this when I grow up. And I just, you know, I started watching all the old Universal horror movies when I was little, and I thought, oh my God, I want to be able to make people look like these people. You know, I want to, I want to do that. And I knew it was possible because my next door neighbor did it. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, then then it's a job of some sort. But what a cool job to have. I want to do that. I really like the idea of being able to alter human beings. Yeah. Even as a child, I thought it was cool. Not that I was unhappy or anything in my childhood, but I just thought it was the coolest thing ever, you know, so. It's awesome that your parents were letting you watch those movies too. <laughs> That's great. Well, <laughs> I would sneak to watch some of them. Yeah, as but, we all do. <laughs> you know, I mean, I watched them. All through, I, I still watch them. If they would come on, like if we had regular TV that we watched anymore and it was just mm. channels, I'd turn it on to that channel. Yeah. Because back when I was growing up, there was like three channels. Mm. I mean, then we got four channels and we had five channels. So you were very limited as to what you could watch on television. And they played old movies all the time. You know, like one channel that played old movies. So I, that's how I saw all the old classics was on TV. So that's a long time to kind of hold on to that one thought process of what you want to do when you grow up, which is impressive. Because I think we kind of sometimes start with something at that age and then it kind of shifts and moves and changes into something else. I had a broad desire. I told my mother, I said, well, what do you want to do? Mm. I said, well, you know, as I got old enough to really know about it, I, mm. you know, which wasn't much longer than that, or just a couple of few years after that. And I said, well, I, I, I either want to do makeup for the movies or I want to be an archaeologist. Wow. And my mother looked at me kind of cross-eyed and went, that's a, <laughs> that's a choice. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, she goes, well, you know, you're, you probably can't be a makeup artist because you have to know somebody. I said, I know Mr. Latino next door. She goes, yeah, but I don't think they'd let the women do makeup. It's only men. You could be a hairdresser. And I said, no, no, I, I don't care about that part. I want to do makeup. My mom says, well, then that's out. And she goes, and if you want to be an archaeologist, you have to go to school a lot and, you know, study all kinds of stuff. And she goes, and then you have to know somebody that has a lot of money if you want to go on a dig. And right. I went, why? You know, yeah. I what, all these barriers. You're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I, I immediately went back to, okay, great, mom. I'll just stick with, I want to be a makeup artist. Yeah. Said, I don't know how you're ever going to do that. And I said, well, we'll see. And I thought, well, maybe I can be a costume designer because I like to make costumes too. So I, I had lofty dreams, you know. Because I automatically would have thought that archaeology was maybe a more male-dominated profession as well, but maybe not. That too. Yeah, yeah. It's everything that I wanted to do was stuff that guys did. Right. Good. So you had that conversation with her. Did it kind of make you dig in harder that, no, no, this is – well, you know, I, you know, as I went to school, I, you know, I always take art classes and mm. I kept thinking, well, I, I, I want to do something in the movies. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I'll, maybe I'll do costumes. When I got out of high school, I went to a fashion merchandising school because I thought, well, immediately, number one, I went to an all girls Catholic school mm. in high school. Mm. And, you know, the next step from there was to go into college prep. So my mom wanted to send me to Loyola Marymount, my parents, I should say. And I just said, no, don't. I said, mom, you're going to waste your money money. Don't send me there. They're not going to teach me what I want to learn. She goes, well, what do you want to learn? I goes, I don't know, but I, I don't think it's anything in college. Yeah. And I said, can you send me to like a fashion merchandising school or, you know, someplace where I can learn fashion or something? Mm. I want to do something like that. Mm. So I went to that school and I got in there and I thought, these people are all nuts. I do not want to <laughs> have anything to do with them. <laughs> 
I <laughs> nuts how? I'm so curious. Nuts how? That everybody's nuts. It didn't matter which one I went into. <laughs> <laughs> They're all creatives. They're all nuts. You're creative, you're nuts, you know. But the, I don't know. It seems to me the people in the fashion industry were much more backstabby than anything. Oh, I, yeah, that kind of nuts. Yeah, that's not good. When you start talking to all the different people that have all these different lines of clothing and it's mm. like, whoa, you know. So... Eventually, I opened a vintage clothing store because I really did like clothing and I figured, you know, I can do makeup and hair on people buying clothes and I can do like something like that. I can start a little business where I can, you know, make people up to go with the clothes I'm selling them. I, I had weird ideas, you know? Yeah, but I like that idea. And, That's cool. <laughs> and uh, so, I mean, I did it to myself and all my friends because we would always dress in 40s clothes because I found the best garments. You know, those gorgeous dresses with the big peplums with all the yeah. sequins all, all down the front of them. I had... Yeah some of the best vintage clothing and fur coats and oh my God, just so much cool stuff. Anyway, I digress. So in the midst of doing that whole thing, I started saving clothes for rock bands. I got married to a, a gentleman in the uh, music business and I started saving clothes for like Led Zeppelin and all these in deep purple, these bands that liked all these cool clothes, you know, like Robert Plant, like all those vintage bed jackets with all the sequins all over them. Mm-hmm. Then I started getting, you know, like local bands started to ask me for stuff. And then I got divorced. And I started going out with this guy in a band who they were kind of like a space band and they wanted spacesuits. And I thought, this is cool. So then I started doing all kinds of cool makeups on them and dyeing their hair crazy colors and putting all these wild makeups on them. And they said, this is really great, but we really want big heads and pointed ears. And I said, all right. <laughs> I said, you know what? I don't know how to do that, but that's what I really want to do. Let me go find out. Yeah. So I started going to science fiction conventions and I met Fred Phillips and I met all these different people. I met Rick Baker and I was at this one particular convention right at the beginning when I first started doing it. Mm. There was these guys all dressed up as Planet of the Apes. Yeah. They had the makeups on, the costumes. I mean, they looked like they stepped right out of the movie. Yeah. This is back in the 70s. This I'm talking about the early 70s now. Yeah. I went up to him and I said, hey, where did you get those masks? And they looked at me really indignantly and they said, these aren't masks, they're makeups. And I said, okay, where'd you get them? <laughs> he made them. And I said, that is so cool. Can you teach me how to do that? Mm. And they said, what, but you're a girl. I said, yeah, I know. Isn't it wonderful? <laughs> <laughs> you're like, what, you don't want to hang out with a girl? What's wrong yeah. with you? <laughs> they, um, anyway, I started going out with one of the guys and cut two, three years later, you know, I'm doing makeup on movies. I mean, was that, I mean, we just went from, I went from doing costumes for rock bands to hanging out with these guys and I learned how to do makeup. And, and the, the cool thing about it was, um, and the person who taught me was Steve Neal, hence my last name, because we were together for like three, four years. And I thought it was easier to take his last name than it was to, you know, go out on my own. And we just sort of worked like this as a team, you know? Yeah. And he didn't like going on the set. He liked making everything. So he would make everything and then I would go and apply it. Okay. And it was really cool because we used to call Fred Phillips up and say, hey, Fred, we got this job to go put this makeup on. Can you go do it for us? Because it's on a union picture and we can't do it. So Fred would do that and we would reciprocate or he would get calls about stuff. And he said, hey, you kids want to go do this? You know, and it was just that's how you networked back then. Like we would hang out with Rick in his garage and we would all talk about little jobs that we could give each other or whatever, because it was just starting out. Everybody was just starting to get the hang of prosthetics, you know, I mean, all five of us. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) 
There was literally like five people. I could count on one hand the prosthetic makeup artists in, in LA at that point, you know? Like you're just working this stuff out yourselves? Yeah, well, yeah, but we'd call up Dick Smith every once in a while, say, hey, Dick, how do you do this? Tell us. But, you know, th- there was really no schools. And, you know, all we had was like the Richard Corson book. And there was a couple of other books, but, you know, not really a lot of education about it back then. So you kind of had to like just do it by, you know, seat of your pants, you know, make the mistakes and figure it out. So you'd found yourself, your like your community. And it was very small at that point. It was very small at that time. Yeah. And that's kind of how I started out. I don't know if that's the question you asked me, but there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is the question. Multiple. Yeah, absolutely. So I want right. to get into like when these guys are teaching you are they are they like fully showing you everything from start to finish of what they've kind of figured them figured out themselves and just passing that along yeah I would hang out they lived up in Santa Barbara and I would go hang out in the garage with them and watch them make stuff you know I'd watch them sculpt and make the molds and you know run the foam and you know and after I got together with Steve I mean we ruined everything you know, we were in two different little apartments and we ruined both stoves and them because we used to bake our foam in the oven. And I'm sure when we moved out, they had to get rid of those ovens because <laughs> they're like, what the hell have they been doing in here? Yeah, what were they <laughs> in there? My God, that sucks. <laughs> so what kind of things do you remember making and working on? Like, was it mainly science fiction stuff or horror stuff or all sorts? Science fiction, horror. Like, my first films were science fiction. Mm -hmm. Everybody used to work for Roger Corman. Well, I never worked for Roger Corman, but I worked for Charlie Band. And Charlie Band made some interesting films. Like, I I did, I don't think, no, Larry Cohen did Kingdom of the Spiders, I think. I did that with Bill Shatner. And that was kind of a horror film, you know, about spiders taking over a small community in Arizona. Yeah. And I did um, Laser Blast, which was with Charlie Band. And that's about an alien that comes down to Earth and a kid finds the alien gets killed by the aliens, the other aliens in the spaceship. And the kid finds a necklace and a, and a gun and goes on a rampage in his neighborhood. And, you know, <laughs> and a time ended where you save saucers or, I mean, it's like little science fiction movies here and there, not too many horror films. I did a couple of like, Oh, and I did um, a really fun picture called tourist trap. Yeah. That was fun. We put our friend, Billy Scudder was all the little characters in the little museum that, Chuck had so we did (laughs) but you know I got into the union relatively quickly Um, I started doing makeup in about three years in yeah in the mid-70s they had to open up the unions because they didn't have enough people in them right so if you worked on a film between such and such a time and such and such a time, you had the opportunity to join the union. You had to have 30 days. And my film had gone signator, which I didn't know at the time what that meant. Mm. But if it went signator in that time, and it did, you could take those 30 days and join the union. And I was on another film called The Dark, which was another horror film. Mm. My beeper went off. And of course, I went to go call somebody to find out what that was all about. And it was the union calling me and telling me, well, you can join the union and we'll put you in the book if you come pay for it right now. So I went to the first AD and I said, 
dude, I said, I just got a call. I can get in the union. I got to go give him my money. He says, okay, go. So they let me leave the set. And I remember that I was like working in Marina Del Rey that day. Mm. And I drove all the way down back into uh, North Hollywood where they had the office and gave them my money. And they could have cared less if that I was getting in. I think there was, I don't remember how many people they let in, but I was probably one of three or four women they let in. Mm Mm-hmm. And I remember saying to um, the gal that was running the office, I said, I said, I'm kind of already, I've already told this company that I would do their next two movies. Is that going to be a problem? Because they're non-union. They go, no, we don't care what you do. <laughs> they, they didn't even want us there. You know, they didn't there, so they didn't get what we did. You're like, listen, this is an exciting day for me. Just yeah. be happy for me. <laughs> it was like, oh yeah, you can do whatever you want to do. Just tell us you're doing it. I went, okay, I'm doing it. You know? <laughs> So, you know, then shortly thereafter, I did those couple of little movies, which, you know, were all of probably a month long. God only knows how long they were. Yeah. And I started getting, I started day playing, which is, you know, day checking, going on different shows here and there. I went like on, I worked on stuff like Eight is Enough and The Love Boat and all these like kooky things, and which was kind of good because I got to see how real TV and movies were, you know, TV was run, you know, because I hadn't really actually been on a real live union set before. Yeah. And so you're doing all sorts of makeup at this point. Yeah. Now I'm just, well, the the stuff for the union was all just straight makeup, you know, anything kooky. And I remember one day I got called to go work on um, Dynasty Mm. and I walked in and it was an older gentleman. I don't remember his name, unfortunately, but um, he said, here, here's a bag of sponges and a box of pencils. Go in that room over there, uh, cut up all the sponges and and sharpen these pencils for me. Hmm. But, oh, okay. I don't have to do any makeup. He says, no, not right now. Go do that. I thought, well, that's odd. But he was checking me out, you know. So I went back and about 45 minutes later or whatever, I came back in the room and I, I said, okay, what would you like me to do now? And he said, you're done already? I said, yeah. And he says, show me your stuff. So I brought back in this giant bag of sponges and all my pencils. And Fred Phillips had taught me how to sharpen the pencils. Now, we're not talking with a pencil sharpener. Yeah. Back then, we used ebony pencils, lead pencils Mm. that you, you know, write with. Yeah. Writes with anything anymore. But anyways, you... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were these lead, they were like charcoal gray pencils, and we used them for eyebrows for everybody. And you had to sharpen them with a single edge razor blade. Mm-hmm. And it was done a very specific way. You know, it was like on both sides to a nice oval shape with a real sharp edge so you could draw on one hair at a time. And wow. they were fantastically. Yeah. I mean, if I couldn't, if I wouldn't get in trouble for putting lead on somebody's skin, I, you could probably still use them. They looked amazing. Mm-hmm. It looked, yeah, I mean, you did that with your, with your regular eyebrow pencils too. Yeah. But this particular pencil worked really well when you wanted to get real sharp, fine lines. Anyway, so I did it all. And he was like shocked that I knew how to do it. And he said, okay, thanks. He said, you know what? You can go home after lunch. And I said, okay, cool. And he said, can you come back tomorrow? And I said, yeah, I'll come back tomorrow. So I went back and he started letting me do in background and stuff. And that was for a few days. And then I went on my merry way. And about a week and a half later, he calls me and says, can you come in? And I said, I said, yeah. And um, he said, I need you to watch Joan Collins. Hmm. And I said, what? <laughs> now, Joan Collins was the star of Dynasty. She's yeah. like giant diva chick at this point. I mean, she's the most famous she ever was in her entire life when she was on this TV show. Yeah. You're like the... The, 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 the one. <laughs> and I, I went, 
You don't actually have to do her makeup. She mm. actually does her own makeup. You just have to watch her. Her makeup artist is going on a, a leave. She has to go do something and I need you to watch her. And I said, okay. So I just, he said, all you have to do is hand her her mirror. So I said, okay. So I handed her her mirror and followed her around with her little makeup bag. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. <laughs> and then, and then what, then, then this happened. I get a call one afternoon from Fred Phillips mm-hmm. and said, Hey V, he says, you've worked with Bill Shatner, right? And I said, yeah. And he says, well, he says, they're going to make a Star Trek movie. Would you want to come and work on it? <laughs> like, um, I, I almost <laughs> dropped to my knees. Yeah. <laughs> I almost dropped to my knees at that point. I went, what? I said, of course I want to come and work on it. <laughs> what kind of questions that? <laughs> He says, okay, he says, I thought it would be nice if Bill had a pretty young girl there to, you know, make him up and somebody he knows, and that would be really nice for him. And I said, I will be there. You bet I'll be there. So I got to go do that. I did the alien that was on the bridge with the big forehead. I watched Leonard on set because Fred's eyes were starting to go. So he, and I would stay in the room with him when he was making up Leonard because he, he, at one point he had to start painting his eyebrows on with red pencil to lay the eyebrows on because he couldn't see it otherwise because mm. a, a, a vein was starting to go through his eye and he was going blind-ish, you know? Yeah. So I would watch Leonard on the set. And then towards the end, after we got all the main photography, we're going to go do the set with all the Klingons in it, which is at the beginning of the movie. Mm. And so... Um, systematically, I just sat in the, I sat in the makeup room because we had makeup rooms on the stages at Paramount because we had just about every stage at Paramount taken up with that movie, except for like one or two. And I sat and I put all the Klingon heads together. I painted them all. I laid all the hair on them and dressed them into hairdos. And I took all the hair pieces that went with them and I dressed the hair pieces onto the hair that I laid on the head and styled everybody. So they all had separate looks. And then I did all the test makeups on all of them. Like I did two a day till they were all done. There was like 13 of them, I think. Yeah. Or something. There was maybe not 13. That's too many. There might've been about eight of them. Mm -hmm. It seemed like 13. They never stopped coming. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I did all the test makeups on all the Klingons and that was really fun. Yeah. And then for the film, I actually did uh, the two main ones. So that was cool. That's amazing. So obviously in a very male dominated space, did you hear that? Did anyone respond to you again? Like, like the guy did at the science fiction convention? Did you hear that again? But you're a female, you're a woman, Um, you can't do that. Not so much. That's good. I mean, I think they said it without saying it. Right. Because my name is so bizarre. If you didn't know who I was, I could have been a guy or a girl, you know? Yeah. So I didn't hear it so much. And I think the fact that I kind of had Fred Phillips behind me and I had started off my first union feature with Star Trek, the motion picture. Mm hmm. And I had done all the aliens with some other people that that kind of gave me some a little bit of a boost, you know. And then I did a couple of other things that were like science fiction oriented where I was doing aliens. I did a TV show, which I can't remember now. Yeah, that's good. That's awesome. Because I I kind of I think I don't know at this in this time, I kind of always think back and hope that people didn't go through too much to kind of get there. There was the only time that it was ever brought up and funny enough, I went in for an interview to do a Sam Peckinpah movie. Mm. 
And by then I'd had a pretty good resume when I went in for this. Mm. And I talked to the production manager and he said, wow, he says, your portfolio is great. He said, your resume is wonderful. He said, there's just one problem. And I looked at him and I said, please don't tell me it's because I'm a woman. And he said, yes, it's because you're a woman. I said, really? And he goes, yeah. He goes, Sam's used to working with crudgety old men. Make a and I said, okay. <laughs> You're but- like, well, I'll be a breath of fresh air then. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, hey, that crudgety old makeup man it is. Have fun. Yeah. And I walked out. But he saw me, which, you know, you never know because he's going to go on and do another movie. And I, I would have gotten in to see him and he could have remembered me for something else, you know? Yeah. I don't think it ever happened because he was probably getting ready to retire too. I think it was one of Sam Peckinpah's last mi- movies. And for those of you who don't know who Sam Peckinpah is, look him up because he did really crazy, really violent kind of movies for back then. Awesome. <laughs> do your homework. <laughs> <laughs> so at no point did you kind of just get kind of beaten down to think, oh, I should just stick to beauty makeup and leave the specialty oh. stuff to the boys. Oh, hell no. Good. Never. Thank God. <laughs> the best part about it was they knew that I didn't want to start my own studio. Right. They, when are you going to start your own studio, V? You could, and I said, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. I said, I want to work with everybody. Yeah. Which I did. I wound up working with everybody eventually, you know? Yeah. I wanted to work for Stan. I wanted to work with Rick. I wanted to work with the Bermans. I wanted, you know, everybody that was here, I wanted to work with them, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, God, just all the things you must have been picking out from all those different yeah, and experiences. It's, you, you get to see how all the big studios work and how, you know, what the chain of command is and who you talk to and who does what and how this how the work is all divided up and who you talk to about who runs the show when you're on the set and it's because different guys are in charge like when I worked with Stan's different guys would be in charge of the film, you know, and I would have to talk to different people about it. It was either John or it was Sean or Shane or you know, you would call up and say, "Oh, who's doing this? Is it John or Shane?" I talked to this time. <laughs> they go, oh yeah, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know, and every once in a while they would come down and stuff and, and I'm still friends with them to this day, you know, so it's kind of cool. Yeah, that is awesome. I think, I mean, it, it is such a great community and family environment yeah. a lot of the time. So that's awesome. So were you doing more application or were you doing sculpting and running pieces and stuff? I did lab work for the first three years when I was with Steve because yeah. we did it together and I hated it. Okay. I didn't like being in the room with all the stinky stuff. Yeah. I had my nails beautifully manicured. And if I had to make a mold, it would mess them up. I didn't like they stuck underneath my fingernails. I didn't like any of that stuff. I actually liked to sculpt, but I didn't like, I, you know, I was always left to clean up the floor and it was like, Oh my God, there's just this clay stuck all over the floor in the kitchen. You know, it was one of those things because we were starting out. So we didn't have like an actual garage because we were in an apartment. We'd use our kitchen. It would just get trashed. And it just gave me a bad taste in my mouth. I'll never forget. We did this movie called the crater like monster yeah. and making it out of wet clay. And we had this giant dinosaur head in our kitchen. It was like, <laughs> Because that's normal. <laughs> yeah. And we did Kingdom of the Spiders. I had a terrarium with tarantulas in the kitchen. It was like, oh, God, God I, I, I hated that part of it. Right. So are you generally a tidy person? 
I'm very tidy. <laughs> okay. So do you think that kind of translates over into your makeup application? I think it does. And sometimes it's very, that can make it very simplistic, but it makes it very clean. Yeah. I don't like, I mean, I can make it busy and dirty when I need to, but it's like, I, I prefer kind of pristine makeups and kind of clean, like on beauty makeups, I like clean, sharp edges. I, I mean, ex- except for when it's not, you know, you're not supposed to do that. I'm just saying. Yeah. Some people's beauty makeups are messy. You don't know, I don't know how to explain it. Well, um, I think it's just a how, which way you like to lean naturally. Like you can do both, but. Yeah, but I am tidy and my station's always tidy, even when I'm doing prosthetics. And if somebody's working with them, I say, you have to clean up as you go, because if you don't, everything's going to stick to that. That's mm. going to happen. You're going to dump your glue over. You're going to make a mess. Mm. So even when I'm doing prosthetics and there's a lot going on, my station is usually pretty darn clean, you know, and I'll put out like separate little towels. So if I have to wipe stuff off, I can take the first towel off and throw it in the trash. And I always use like a a palette paper because I don't want to have to clean off a metal palette, not to mention the fact that you can't see colors through it. Right. Be able to see the colors through the palette. Yeah. And I find that people that are tidier when they're doing makeup, for some reason, do really cool, clean makeups too, you know? Yeah. I think there's kind of like this, um, I don't know what it is, that it's just like, if you're creative, you're messy. And that kind of just gives people the excuse to just be a mess. <laughs> yeah. Well, you don't have to be. I mean, you don't have I, to be. You just, you know, as you, it's like, it'll get messy and I'll go, okay, wait, I got to stop because I can't think straight. There's too much shit in front of me, you know? Yeah. I'm quite similar. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And and then you can't find anything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, if you have to do a messy makeup, you have different palettes that you work off of so that you mm. can keep them in order. So you can transfer your palettes back and forth. Just make bigger palettes because it's it just helps you keep everything straight, especially if you have to go back and use that color again. Yeah. You bring that palette back. It's just a just making a big mess everywhere so you can't find anything you know yeah so it just helps with your time especially if you have a lot of people working in a trailer you have Mm -hmm. to stay tidy because if you spread out and take up three stations you know Uh (laughs) (laughs) i love having i love having two stations for sure oh i mean who doesn't oh my god That was uh, probably one of the only positive things about after COVID was having that space in between (laughs) each station. I was like, oh, two stations? This is amazing. (laughs) So looking back, I mean, (laughs) V, your filmography is incredible, obviously. And I just want, and I know that it's difficult to choose um, between your favorite children, but I want you to try. (laughs) I really can't. I mean, I... Every one of them was so kind of special and different and fun. Yeah. A different reason, you know, like maybe I liked working with the director of that, of that show. Maybe I liked the fact that you got like, for instance, like all of the films I did with Tim Burton, Mm -hmm. they were all fun individual characters and all really cool to do on really cool people. Yeah. Am I going to choose? Right. Really fun characters. When I did the Hunger Games, I loved working with Francis, and he let me do really creative stuff. And when we did the Hunger Games, we did everything from like high fashion beauty makeups mm. to killing people and doing amputees. I mean, and doing creature makeups. We did everything on those. Yeah, that variety. There was so much you had, which is a perfect example of why to be 
like a complete makeup artist, you really have to know how to do everything because you will get called on upon your in your career to be able to have to run a show where you might have all of those things in it, you know, mm. so really good to know how to do all those things at least. And if you aren't proficient at all of them, at least know enough to know who to hire to do them with you, you know, because you can't do anything alone. No. None of these, none of these movies were, are ever done alone. No. <laughs> I always laugh when it's just like, oh, I did this and I did that. And I'm like, yeah, no, you didn't. <laughs> you had a team of people. <laughs> you did part of it. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And you may have overseen everything, but it's, yeah, yeah, your hands were not that busy. My team and I, you know, or, you know, we did this movie or we, I learned a long time ago that, that there's no real I, you know, there might be an I just say, we did this and I did this portion of it. Yeah. But, you know, it's like, did I do all those makeups alone? No. I did Mrs. Doubtfire. My assistant was um, Stefan Dupuis. You know, everybody everybody has a part in it, especially on these prosthetic makeups. It's always better to have somebody working with you because it goes quicker. Oh, yeah. yeah I find that after two hours, the actors just don't want to sit there that long. You know, if you can do it by yourself in under two hours or in an hour and change, great. But if you know that that makeup's going to take longer than two hours, you got to have somebody helping you with it. Mm. Because they just get too antsy-pantsy, you know? Yeah, and then it just makes your job more difficult. <laughs> yeah, it, then they want to start to get up and go have a cigarette. They want to go to the bathroom. They want to go here and then go there and then they... ADs are yelling at you like, wah, 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 wah. <laughs> hey, done. well, go talk to them. They've been sitting in their trailer for 20 minutes. So that's why yeah. they're not. You're you like, know? I'm doing what I can. So if we can go back a little second and touch on some of the Tim Burton stuff, because I'd like to understand, I guess, how you guys would generally approach the character designs together. Well, Tim in his, in his own right is an artist. So he's pretty much designed them ahead of time. Right. So Tim pretty much designs everything ahead of time. And he has that aesthetic where he loves that dark eye look. And for instance, when we did the first one I did with him, uh, was Beetlejuice, of course, but he didn't, he didn't have a design yet except for his picture of Beetlejuice was, um, kind of a crusty old guy that looked like he was going through dumpsters. Right. So I did the test makeup that looked like the little scratchy picture that he drew of Beetlejuice. And he says, Oh no, that's, he's too ugly. We can't do that. And so I did, and I did another one and I kind of changed it a little bit. No, I said, I said, Hey Tim, I said, why don't you just let me take him back to the trailer and let me do what I want. He goes, okay. So I took him back to the trailer and Steve Laporte and I worked out a really cool makeup on him. I said, Steve, do you have a broken nose anywhere at home? Cause Michael said, I, I want to have, I don't want to use my nose. I want to have a broken nose. Okay. Steve didn't have any broken noses, but he had two little swollen lips. So we put a swollen lip on either side of his nose and gave him a <laughs> <laughs> And then Steve, because we had no budget for this movie. We had no, all the budget went to the background actors, all those other characters that were in the afterlife. Yeah. So for Beetlejuice himself, we had to figure it out. So we made bald caps for him every day. 
Steve made some teas for him, um, and I sent somebody off to the uh, hobby store to get some crushed foam in different colors of green because I figured it'd be fun if he looked like he was crawling out from under a rock. So when we finally did our final test makeup, Tim goes, oh, that's great. Okay, that's good. Because he had to be creepy looking, but he couldn't be scary, and he had to be kind of funny. And Yolanda must have dyed that wig about four or five times before we got it to that hideous color that it came out. Yeah. You know, so that's how we created Beetlejuice. So that was just kind of like, you know, we pulled it out of our, you know what, for that. Yeah. So for all the characters in that film, are you over, were you overseeing all of them with Tim? No, because, well, they were, I can't remember how they were designed or I'm not sure if we had pictures of them. We just knew that like the football team was in an airplane crash. Mm. So they were all messed up. And then we had all the different designations. Like there's a guy who got eaten by a shark. So his foot's in a thing. There's a, the girl get sawed in half by the yeah, <laughs> yeah. Know, comedic type situations. So that's kind of how all those came about. And then we just picked a color to paint them. Robert Short was in charge of all of the visual and special effects on Beetlejuice. So mm. Even though he was not a makeup artist, he got the money to do the makeup. So he hired some guys in his studio to come in and build all the makeups. And then I gave him some names, but he also knew who he wanted to hire to put them on. So he was kind of in charge. They were like in a different room. They weren't even in our makeup trailer, which was kind of tiny. So we couldn't have done them in there. But he was kind of in charge of that part. I just did all the test makeups for the coloring ahead of time and gave him the makeup to use on them once they you know, all the makeups were put on. And Eddie Enriquez was back there, Margaret Becerra, Frank Perez, a couple of other people whose names I can't remember off the top of my head. It was quite a while ago. Yeah. There was a lot of makeup artists back there doing all those characters. So he designed, I'm not sure if he himself designed or if there was an artist that was working in conjunction with them and Tim. I'm not really sure because that part I wasn't privy to. Yeah. Because we did the main characters and we did Beetlejuice. Yeah. So working with Tim on these different films, I mean, he has such a aesthetic that you can just see Tim right. Burton through everything. So I imagine he is really quite involved with the character design, as you say, from his artistic sketches and stuff like that. Oh, when we did Edward Scissorhands, I went into Stan Winston's and they had done a bust of Johnny mm. and, you know, done a, did a mock-up with the hair and the paint and everything. And I thought, well, that's okay. So then we brought Johnny in and I put the makeup on him and I did his makeup, which you know, I proceeded to fine tune and alter and pick the appropriate colors for him. Yeah. And with that makeup, we did something really interesting that nobody really realized, not even Tim. Mm. But because he had a a look on him that was painted on, you mm. know, his eye shape was painted on. Depending on what the scene was, I changed the shape of his eye makeup. Wow. Just like for emotion? Yeah, for emotion, because it would change his emotional, it changed his look. Wow. For instance, I changed the shape of his eyes. When he got mad, I would change the shape to make him look like he was angry. Uh, when he was perplexed, I would change it slightly for that. If he, you just, whatever it was, what, if he was sad, it would change slightly. So it was kind of an interesting, and, and Johnny and I knew where I was doing it, but mm. nobody else did. So that was really cool. That was like our little thing we had. That's awesome. It, I, I mean, thinking back on watching it, like, because his face, oh my goodness, you did read everything from I, those. He was so, he was such a pitiful, sweet character. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Absolutely. So that's awesome because, I mean, you get, you know, some directors that aren't so heavily involved in the design yeah. of things, but Tim obviously hugely. It's great to have somebody who can tell you what they like and what mm. they want, you know? Yeah. And then also be able to let go like he did with Beetlejuice to be like, yeah, have a go at it. See what you come up with, which is yeah. awesome. I, w- I just lucked out, I guess, when I came up with those big circles around his eyes because his drawing was just like a little pencil sketch. It was kind of hard to see. He says, you know, I want him dark around the eyes. I said, OK. So I just thought, well, I'll just paint it in. I, I thought, well, if he's supposed to be kind of comedic and scary, then it should be very comic book looking, you know? Yeah. I just did like really kind of comic book broad makeup on him. And that's what we wound up going with. I love it. Kind of fun, stupid looking, you know, it was just, and so, and all the other characters had the same look, you know, just big saucer, dark eyes and yeah, (laughs) very cool. So uh, looking back on, on all your makeups, is there one that kind of stands out as being the most challenging that you've, that you've done? Well, some of them, you know what? I don't know why everybody says, what, was that hard to do? No, if you know how to do it, it's not hard. It's, <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know how to say that. Yeah. I think probably as far as a challenge goes, mm. the most challenging one was probably Mrs. Doubtfire. Oh, and the only reason it was challenging was because I did it so many times. Right. I mean, I did that makeup like 54 times on Robin. Right. And so to get it exactly the same spot every Mm. day after day, and I had Mm. to make sure that it was always overlapping. So if the phone shrunk that day, I had to pull something a little further, a centimeter or two, because if I didn't and he started to sweat, the sweat would start popping through the holes. Yeah. And it was like, oh, my God. So I had to make sure that everything stayed overlapping. And the last piece on was the bottom lip. So... If that didn't connect everywhere, I was doomed. (laughs) But that was probably the only challenging, really challenging thing, I think, you know. Yeah, no, it makes sense. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, every job it has it's challenging for different reasons, and but most yeah. of the time, I think we're the type of people who and you know enjoy the challenge, so you don't kind of look back on it as being a negative necessarily. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It wasn't a, it wasn't a bad challenge. It was just something I had to do, you know? Yeah. I want to just take a moment, and I know that you've probably spoken about this a lot, but I think it's incredibly, well, it's phenomenal, and I think it's amazing. Being nominated eight times for Oscars and then winning three, like how, how does one deal with this? <laughs> when it first happens, are you just like, okay, now I want another one, kind of like when people get tattoos, they get the... <laughs> think that was something I ever thought about. I mean, the first time it was, I just remember after we won, you know, when I went up there, somebody says, how's it feel? And I said, it was like the most incredible high I have ever experienced in my entire life. You know, because you go to the, you have a brunch ahead of time and they say, okay, now when you get up there, you're going to see the screen flashing. It's going to tell you how many seconds you have left. la di da di da You know, you're going to do this and you're going to do that and jump up and get up there. You're excited and la di da I got up there. I didn't see anything. <laughs> and we all broke it up. So we each had 15 seconds to talk. Mm. And I thought Robert Short was going to have a coronary. He almost couldn't get his words out. He was so nervous. Oh, <laughs> But... Anyway, so we're we're going backstage and we're in the elevator and I grabbed Steve Laporte by his lapels and I was jumping up and down. I said, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, I can't believe we won. And I said, did you see a screen? He goes, no, I didn't see anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good that you're on the same page then. <laughs> you both blacked out. <laughs> I thought, 
thought, well, if by chance I should ever get up here again, I yeah. want to see what they're talking about with this screen and all this stuff you're supposed to see, you know? Yeah. You know what this reminds me of? When you go skydiving, they say that your first time you don't even remember the first few seconds of falling. Your brain just kind of blocks it out. But the more you skydive, the more you remember back. So I feel like it's a little bit like that. The more you go up there, the more you probably, by the time you won your third one, you probably remember it quite well. Yeah. <laughs> we won for Mrs. Doubtfire and I went up there. I went, oh my God, you can see everybody. Oh God, this is frightening. <laughs> you can you can see all the you can see all the movie stars in the front rows. Yeah. You can see the screen. I'm going, how did I not see this the first time? Mike, I was literally blind with excitement. Because <laughs> you just you're so elated. You're like in another gosh darn planet it was crazy because for the first one that was your first time nominated too correct yeah so that was freaky <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh that's so funny i'm just wondering whether when you went up there the next time and you could see everybody's faces you're probably wishing i wish i could black out right now and not see all this <laughs> It was, it was it was really interesting. It was kind of fun. It was like because I was actually there that time. You know yeah, I mean? yeah. Present. <laughs> Emotionally and physically. That's amazing. Do you do you feel like looking back that after I guess after the first win, whether that had any change or effect on your career? You know, I I think it, it's almost a detriment to your career because people think, oh my God, they're going to be so expensive now. I'm not going to be able to hire them. It's like, dude, I, I don't get it. So it's like they gave me this cool award and it's really exciting and it's really groovy, but it didn't make my head bigger. It didn't make, you know, I think it's really cool that you are you know, given such amazing gifts for the work that you do, but it's not why you go to work, you know? No. I've heard that often, actually, that there's kind of like it's um, people just assume there's a lot of assumption going on that you're now that that's happened, you're too busy. So don't even bother getting hold of them to see yeah. if they're available or that you're going to cost too much. It's to your detriment almost. Yeah. I mean, it, it it does help. Of course, it helps with your you know, self-esteem and it helps with your reputation. But in the same time, that help could also be a detriment, I, I think, you know, but after a while, I don't think people think about that. And sometimes if there are newer people in the business, they don't even know. And sometimes they don't even know who you are. They're just calling because they know you do that. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, 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 absolutely. All these people are so young. Now, none of them know what any of us did or do or anything. <laughs> you know? They call up an agent and say, do you have anybody that does this? I mean, that's kind of where it's at now. Yeah. Which is unfortunate because now they have no respect for us, you know? Yeah. That about everybody because certain people you repeat, you know, your their clientele, which is good, or they repeat their crew and are, you know, good with their crew and keep hiring the same people because they know they're going to do a great job, which is awesome. And I think that's always the best way to get hired is by word of mouth from a producer or a director, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And just building those relationships. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's always nice to have an actor that hires you all the time, but that doesn't necessarily mean that production is going to be friendly to you. In fact, sometimes they're almost kind of bitchy to you because you're coming in with an actor, you know? Yeah. So. <laughs> Taking the control away from them. That's what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> They're bringing their own people. Oh, crap. <laughs> they oh want to be comfortable. Oh, my God. No. <laughs> I mean, 
all that's what it's all about is they want to be comfortable. They don't want to have to train somebody again, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They've got that shorthand with somebody. It's yeah. just, yeah. Especially when they're away on location, I think just having. Yeah. And then they have a friend to hang out with. Yeah. Having, having something familiar. So earlier mentioning that you have officially retired from film and television work. Yes. How did you know it was time to do that? Well, I didn't really know. It kind of happened accidentally. I just finished a movie and my knee was killing me. Yeah. Both killing me, but one was really so bad. You know, from years of pounding and climbing in and out of the damn vans and doing all the stuff that we do that, oh, yeah. you know, dragging around 45 pound containers, like 35 of them, mm. not letting anybody help you. Yeah. I damaged my knees, you know? So I went into um, Social Security to get signed up for disability, right? Mm. And the woman looks at me, she goes, You can't sign up for disability. And I said, but I'm going to be disabled. I'm going to go get my knees done. I need to get my disability. And they said, oh, no, you're too old. And I went, what? <laughs> and they said, yeah, no, you're too old. You have to go on You have to go on uh, Social Security. I said, really? Yeah, and I said, but I'm still working. <laughs> she goes, well, uh, you know, you don't have to retire, but you have to go on Social Security. You can't dis- get disability now. And they go, and by the way, why didn't you get Medicare? And I said, I have insurance. So I, I screwed up everything. I was like... Over the age to get, I should have gotten Medicare at 65. I should have gotten all these things that I didn't know because I was too busy working. Yeah. And I didn't know that you, it's mandatory, by the way, that you have to go on Medicare when you're 65, even if you have your full, you know, thing with the union. Oh, that's good to know. Interesting. I didn't know that because I thought. I don't need Medicare. You know, our insurance wants you off of it too. Right. <laughs> so go on to Medicare. <laughs> so they don't have to take the brunt of all your, because now you're getting old and you're going to fall apart. So we want you to, somebody else to pay for the big stuff and we'll pick up the slack. I know, but for how long have you been paying into your disability? I mean, come on. <laughs> you're paying into all these things. Yeah. And you go to use it. But anyway, so I said, well, crap. And then I was talking to Gloria Cassidy. She goes, V, she goes, you know what? You should just collect your pension, too, if they're making you do that for a while, because you can go off your pension, which I didn't know either. So if you want, you you can get I, – so I said, well, fine. I'll, I'll, I'll retire. I'll get all the benefits of retiring now while I'm recuperating. And she goes, yeah, then you just call them up and tell them you're going back to work, and they take you off your pension. Just really simple. It's a simple phone call. I thought, well, bitchin'. So I did that. And while I was, while I went, when I went in to get my knee done, hmm. my knee wasn't healing up so good. And it was still hurting really bad after a few months. And I went back into my doctor and I said, dude, I said, why is my knee hurting so bad? And he said, I better take a x-ray of your hips. Hmm. So he x-rayed my hips and he says, you need to get hip replacements. And I went, what? So I said, oh my God. So now it's the fall. Yeah. I haven't gone to work, back to work. And I'm thinking, well, I'm still getting all my money. I'm fine. Hmm. So I went and got my hip done. As soon as I got my hip done, all the pain went away. It was the yay. So then, maybe shortly thereafter, I was thinking, you know, I kind of like this not working thing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure. <laughs> I like not getting up at two and three in the morning to go to work. And yeah. I thought I could go back anytime I want. And I thought, well, maybe while I'm taking a little time off here, I should go and just take the rest of the year and get my other knee fixed. Mm-hmm. So I uh, went and got my other knee done. And then a few months later, I went and got my other hip done and then COVID hit and I couldn't go back to work. So now here I am thinking, you know what? I'm kind of okay. Yeah, I got two new hips, two new knees. I'm not going to waste them at work. 
<laughs> now kind of not doing anything and I'm still doing other stuff, you know? Yeah. I was helping out at uh, cinema makeup school then. So I was still kind of involved and I was still doing makeup at my leisure and at a reasonable hour. And I thought, well, this is kind of cool. And then COVID hit. Hmm. And then I decided to quit cinema makeup school because they weren't treating people correctly. Hmm. And um, while I was off, I thought, God, you know, I said to my friend Lee, I said, you know, we should start our own school. And one thing led to another, and now here we are. We started our own school. You said it out loud. The ball started rolling, and yep. you're doing it. So yeah. tell me about the school. I want to know all about it. Well, over COVID, we decided to write all of our syllabus, so we wrote all of our syllabus. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote all the lab classes, and I wrote all the makeup classes. Awesome. And we started looking for a building, and we found a building which is still in the works. And it's taking forever because Los Angeles is, has so much red tape. Yeah. But in the meantime, we are doing our classes upstairs at the Friends Educational Loft. Oh, cool. And because I'm teaching them myself, I don't want to have really big classes because I want to be – you're actually getting individual training from me. Yeah. So I've, I think the most students I've had at once has been eight. Nice. And because really, six is ideal, but I can do eight if I have to, depending on what the class is. Mm. But when we're doing all the stuff, most of the stuff we're doing is all special effects. So when we're doing prosthetics and you know transfers and all these things, I really like to go around to each student. So by the time I'm at the other end, I got to go back to the first one again, you know, because yeah. it takes that long. You want to spend several minutes at least with the person and help them, you know, if they're not going in the right direction with their painting to assist them. You know, you can do it a bunch of different ways as long as it winds up looking like that but this is the way I do it and I try to make it so it's the easiest path you know mm. so that they can follow it yeah uh, and that seems to work out really well oh that's another thing with all of my classes you do not work on each other you have a model so we hire actors oh cool and use them as a model so at the end of it they get pictures and you get really good portfolio pictures because we have like a, a dedicated area set up where we can take photographs so I have also found that I don't really have any beginner students right now. I'm, I actually have makeup artists that are just wanting to get, you know, touched up on their stuff that want to learn how to be more proficient at certain things, which mm. is really kind of cool because they already have a little bit of knowledge. They have a pretty good kit. They just have to get the additional things that they need to finish up that class. And it's really great. I mean, I had students come from New York because they were doing a period film and they wanted to take the hairline classes because you don't get to do that a lot. You know, so th- when they left, they felt much more proficient at it and, yeah. you know, more confident that they would be able to do that because they were going to have to lay a lot of sideburns and beards and stuff. And they really weren't feeling real secure in that. So it's really kind of great just to get, you know, get up to speed on all the stuff that you do all the time that you want to be able to say you can do, you know. Yeah. And, and because of the fact that the classes you don't have to take a whole st- string of them. You can take one at a time. They're all set up so you can take them in one-week pods. Right. So you can just go in and take that one class, which is I've figured it out that we can teach you everything you need to know about that in one week. So that's what I did the first time, couple of times I ran the classes. I wanted to make sure there was enough information in each day and enough time for each student to be able to master that particular part of the class. So 
they're they're really quite specific and really great to you know hone in on those particular traits as a makeup artist yeah so anytime anyone knows that they've got some time off coming up you should check yeah. out and see if the dates line up absolutely and we we have classes up and running now from starting in april all the way to september oh cool so some of the classes will repeat and some of them will introduce new classes into the next section like the coming up section we don't have the hair class but in the following one we do mm. we we have now we're opening up lab classes. So we are going to our site where we house all of our historical makeup molds and stuff. So we are setting up a small lab in there so that we can do messy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to have, you know, a, a sculpting and casting, you know, molding and running. And and so you'll be able to make actual prosthetics. So that's kind of cool. We're just starting into that now. That's awesome. So even though you have had students that are kind of already in the business. Is it open to beginners also? Like do those same classes work for both or? These particular classes we're doing right now, you can be a beginner, but you have to have a kit and you have to have some knowledge of makeup because we Mm. aren't teaching, we're not teaching color theory per se. We're not teaching any of those types of classes yet. Yeah. So more for makeup artists that have actually done makeup that have a kit that kind of know what they're doing a little bit. Mm Mm-hmm. And they've had to have touched somebody before, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. So not, not, not straight yeah. out of the, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but, you know, for the younger people, this, this summer, we are also having summer school. So we're going to have a summer school and it's 18 and under. Oh, so wow. classes will be for beginners. So we wanted to, you know, include the kids in this, but the other stuff that we teach in the regular school right now, because we're not teaching beginner classes mm. is, is not really for the younger people that have not done it, they're going to have to get a little bit more proficient and have done something at least, you know? God, that summer school sounds pretty awesome. I mean, you would have killed to get into something like that when you were in high school, right? (laughs) Oh yeah. Great for, you know, your, um, you know, kids just out of high school or, Mm. you know, seniors or juniors that are kind of like dying to get into it or even younger, as long as they can, you know, paint and they have a makeup kit, they can come, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Or even just, I guess it could be also assisting and helping them figure out if that is truly the direction they want to head in. If that's the direction they want to go in. And even if you have like a little brother or a sister or whatever, cousin or whatever, you know, tell them about it because there's, you know, there's all kinds of bed and breakfasts around and stuff that they can go, you know, get if they're out of town and Mm. it's going to be fun. I think that's going to be a blast actually. So what is the name of the school? Legends Makeup Academy. Awesome. B. Neal's Legends Makeup Academy. And you can find us at legendsmakeup.com and you can go in there and look at for all all the classes and yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like you've got a wide range of, of stuff that's kind of rotating and yeah, that's awesome. And also, um, you know, we're on all the social media platforms. Um, it's legends makeup Academy, I think is us on Instagram. I think if you put in legends makeup, it's going to pop up. Yeah. And then of course there's my site, which is the real V and I post other kinds of stuff that I do. Like when I go to conventions and I do a lot of that kind of stuff now, which is really fun. Yeah. And you know, just cause V says she's retired, she hasn't really. <laughs> you know, I say to my friends, I said, my God, I'm busier now than I was when I was working. How did I, <laughs> my God, <laughs> now the work that I'm doing now, I can get up like at seven o'clock. Yeah. Ladies hours. Come on. And even on set, I'm like just getting up. <laughs> Lady of what, leisure that what, still works full time. <laughs> pleasure. 
<laughs> That's awesome. So I have a couple of questions from our listeners okay. that they sent in for you. And so Zoe has a couple of questions. She'd like to know the biggest piece of advice for newcomers or aspiring artists. Well, you know what I always say to everybody? Never turn down a job. Right. Because you're going to meet your next employer. You're going to meet an actor that might hire you for something, you're always going to be learning something. It's all about getting experience. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter what it is. If they're not paying you what you think should be your rate, what's your other choice? Sitting home alone, not doing anything, not making any money, not getting any experience. Just don't let it cost you to go do this job (laughs) by all means. Yeah. But, you know, unless it's something you really want to do, of course. But, you know, always, always accept whatever comes your way just so you get the experience of working and and always be kind to other makeup artists and help each other because it'll come back to you. It really will. I mean, I, I know a lot of people, well, I can't tell her about that because she's going to take my job. And nah, 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 nah. Don't do that, guys, because you know what? There will be the right job for you will come along. Yeah. You, you know, if you're earnest and you're sincere about your work and you try the best that you can do and you to get along with everybody, that's really important. You know, yeah. it's you don't have to be snippy or bitchy or, you know, whatever. You do your best and get out there and get the experience and, you know, meet people and be kind to each other and, you know, do your best job always. Yeah. If you want to work in a positive, supportive community, then you've got to act like that too. So that's exactly right. (laughs) And so Zoe also wanted to know if you could go back in time and change anything about your career, would you? Nope. Nope. Everything happened for a reason and it all kind of just, I wouldn't have done this if I hadn't done that. Mm. Wouldn't And I wouldn't be here right now if I hadn't worked for rock bands. Mm. I wouldn't be here right now if I hadn't done whatever it is that, you know, some stupid mistake that I made because I learned from that. So no, I wouldn't change anything. I There's really nothing I would change. I love it. Um, I just need to clarify something. But when you were talking about Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple, did you work with them? I hung out with them. (laughs) Oh, lady, that's very fucking cool. (laughs) I actually only got to see them at the Hollywood Bowl one time when I took them some stuff. Yeah. was my, my I was married when I was 18 and he was in he was a British guy and he was in the rock business and he knew all these guys awesome <laughs> but I did used to hang out with the Led Zeppelin at the whiskey and I wasn't even old enough to be doing it but I was <laughs> I mean who wouldn't <laughs> you know that's awesome. It's time to go home. It's going to get rowdy. You better go home now because <laughs> maybe my husband was out of town and I was just taking him stuff. <laughs> but I would take John Bonham's wife out shopping with the baby and stuff. Oh, that's so <laughs> awesome. So um, Jade would like to know if you are hoping to start a career as a makeup artist for film, she wants to know the best U.S. city to live in to do that, in your opinion. Right now, Atlanta. Right now, Atlanta. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, everything's happening in Atlanta. I mean, you know, you can start wherever you are, but it's going to be slim pickings, you know, mm. that relegated to like local television stations and, you know, newscasts and stuff mm. like But um, if you want to get, you, you need to go to a right to work state, which, you know, Georgia is. And there's just so much work there. Um, there's not, not a whole lot in New Mexico right now, even though that you can also do that there, I think. Mm. Maybe even Texas. I'm not sure, but there's not a lot going on in Texas either. So, I mean, the biggest one, obviously, for everybody is Atlanta. 
but it's so saturated right now. But still, like I said, if you're good and you're you're nice and your people like to be around you, you'll get work. Yeah, agreed. And I think it, it, it kind of shifts over the years too of where is busy. So, you know, exactly. Might have to be prepared to move. <laughs> Be mobile. Yeah, <laughs> all gypsies. And Michelle asked a, like a three-part question, but I feel like we covered a bit of it because she was wondering about the freedom with creating the Beetlejuice character and staying true to Tim Burton's sketches and things. But the part we didn't go over, she was wondering, were you involved at all in helping to translate that look over for the Broadway adaptation? Absolutely not. No, okay. <laughs> no, and- you know, I'm not involved in, in the current production of Beetlejuice either. Yeah, I have to say, and I don't know, this is me completely 100% speaking as a fan of the Beetlejuice film, like it's one of my top 10, that I kind of wish they would not do it. <laughs> I want it to be just left alone. <laughs> They're going to have to change everything because... Yeah, what's well, a different time i mean it's however many years later like you know back then it was like it was silly and cool i don't know that it will look silly and cool now it'll just be cool cool (laughs) yeah i guess we'll find out (laughs) i guess we will and one last thing that um andy was asking um and it was pertaining to ed wood Mm -hmm. so Andy was asking, he was saying, how was it having to recreate that specific era and have it translate well within the black and white film? And in the case of character Bella, the challenge of recreating an icon like Bella Lugosi while finding the balance between Rick Baker's designs and Tim Burton's vision. That's quite a mouthful of a question. Well, first of all, Rick Baker designed the character. I only applied it. Yeah. When Rick's original test makeup of that character was absolutely stunning Mm. and he looked amazing, especially in color. Cut to, we have to put him on camera in black and white. And so the day I was doing the test, I followed Rick's makeup that he wanted me to do. I applied it. I, you know, I had his pictures in front of me and I applied it the way he did. And we put him in front of camera and Tim says, oh no, he looks way too good. You got to take him back, darken up his eyes. And I went, "Uh oh, (laughs) so I took him back to the trailer and I started making his, he says, make him look sick. He's, his eyes are too fresh. He needs to look, you know, like down. And, Mm. and because it was in black and white, we had to go kind of extreme. Mm. So I was in there in the trailer, darkening down his eyes and Rick walked in (laughs) and he says, God damn it. He says, I knew the minute I gave you this makeup, you were going to put dark circles around his eyes. You're like, it's a Tim Burton film. What do you expect? <laughs> and I said, no, no, I'm not putting dark circles on. And Martin says, no, no, Tim told her to darken my eyes because I look too healthy. Right. So I said, just stay here with me and tell me if it's okay. <laughs> you know. So I darkened his eyes, made him look sicklier, and I hollowed out his cheeks some more, and I just made it a little bit more extreme. Mm. And I really found that in order to make it look right, I almost had to make him up in black and white and browns, you know, to get the tonality correct. Because it's just too hard to figure it out otherwise. So when you saw him in person, he almost looked like he was in black and white in person. Right. Didn't have to do that with the other characters. The most I had to do was like, I. funny enough, I added a little bit of black to the girl's lipsticks just to make them more intense. Oh, wow. Because we found the color that we liked and then I made it more intense with a little just a tick of black in it, which for some reason made it reflect differently on the camera. It just gave it a harder edge so that they looked like they were wearing dark lipstick, which is what Tim wanted. Yeah. You know, in real life, those lipsticks wouldn't have come out that dark, but that's kind of what the look he was going for. So I found that the girls pretty much looked 
the way they looked mm. and everybody else, everybody else looked fine. It was just the Bella makeup, especially because it was mostly rubber. So we had to deal with that situation as well. So, wow. yeah. Did I, did, is that the answer to the question? Andy, I think she answered it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> okay. That's awesome. Or, you know, where I just followed the period, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But I love uh, Rick's reaction coming in yeah. <laughs> and you're like, oh no, I busted. <laughs> Like, ah, crap. <laughs> it's like perfect timing. You're just here. Both, both Martin and I were laughing because we knew exactly what he was talking about. <laughs> yeah. Oh my, God. <laughs> oh, my God. I love it. So one last thing I would love to know, because you've mentored so many people throughout your career. And did that, was that like a conscious decision or is it just something that kind of comes naturally to you to want to share and, and help? I think it comes naturally, but also, you know, we never, we don't have an apprentice program anymore. Mm. So how are people going to learn unless they go to school, but that's all fine and dandy. That doesn't Mm. teach them practical needs of a makeup artist and a day-to-day decision-making. You know what I mean? You can take all the schooling you can take, unless you're actually there and you see it happen, Mm. you don't have the actual knowledge and wherewithal to deal with it when it happens, you know? So... Um, I was really grateful that production companies were letting me bring on what I called PAs. So I would bring on these young makeup artists who wanted to be, you know, makeup artists and but couldn't do it because they couldn't do makeup with us. But they could watch and they could, you know, they could help us and they could take our equipment from A to B and they could help us run. As a PA, they could run backgrounds so they would watch to see when the makeups were done and they would put somebody in our chair. Mm. So they got to do a lot of things that are very helpful for them actually just to be a department head eventually, you know, to see how things are run. Like we'd have them put our continuity books together, any of the kind of things that like we didn't have time to do or that we'd be doing at the end of the day that took up another hour and the drivers are sitting there tapping their feet. Yeah. So they would do all of the stuff that was a little bit more time consuming for us that we didn't have time to do. Mm. And they got to watch on the set and they got to watch when we're doing makeups. So they're learning makeups from the people that are actually there. They're even getting to learn how to do a little bit of hair because they can see how the hairdressers work and how we work together mm. and you know wh- how that symbiotic relationship really creates a character together, which I think is always very, very important. You know, I mean, I love working with the hairdressers to make sure that our looks are co- cohesive. Oh yeah. It's just like a perfect example. If I may digress for a moment Mm. Um, on the hunger games, Linda flowers and I worked very closely together on that Effie character because we knew what the wardrobe was going to be. So I said, okay, so let's get down the silhouette. So we would bring the, her costumes into the trailer and Linda would start putting, piecing together a wig and figuring out what that was going to look like and what color it was going to be. And then I would chime in with the makeup and say, okay, I'm going to use these colors on her. And and we got to do a test makeup ahead of time, which was invaluable. Yeah. Because then I could see what was too much makeup. Because on the first movie, she was very garish. He wanted her to be unattractive almost, which I, I now in, in retrospect, it all works because she was kind of a garish character in the first one and she wasn't very kind. Mm. But in the second one, she's a lot more amiable and sweeter to the people. So I wanted her to look that way. I wanted her to be pretty. I wanted her to be softer. So mm. I kind of got to do what I wanted to do. And 
with having everything there in front of me, you know, the makeup was the crowning glory. It wasn't the centerpiece. And everybody says, oh, those makeups were so fantastic. Well, they don't realize that they're fantastic because they go with what she's wearing and what her hair looks like. Mm. You can't just design a makeup and then say, okay, put the hair on the wardrobe on. Let's see what it looks like. Yeah. You know, it all character design, isn't it? From Exactly. Thing. So if you take her hair off, I have like all these great pictures of her without her wig on and her hair wrapped and just wearing a sweatshirt. Mm. You can see what those makeups actually were. And some of them were quite simple and soft and pretty. They just looked really elaborate because when you've got all the other accoutrement on around her, you know, it just all came together. So this is like really important for, like I like I said, like the PAs got to see all that. They got to see how all of that works together and we work together as a unit, which I think a lot of times people don't realize that we do work very closely together because sometimes you don't have the luxury of having a hairdresser that you work with all the time that's, you know what I mean? Some, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's happened to you. Have you worked on shows where, mm-hmm. you know, you didn't drive <laughs> makeup people sometimes or? Yeah. I, I, well, I come from New Zealand, so I come from a background of doing both. So when I moved that's to true. Los Angeles, I was just like, fuck, I have to choose one. Ah. So yeah. I went with hair. And uh, yeah, my first couple of experiences of really feeling the disconnect between the two departments, yeah. I was just like, what is happening? <laughs> Yeah. So it, it it's something I just, I, I can't handle it. I, I don't deal with it very well. I just really want to be so collaborative with the other department. Well, what you, you have to find them that you work well with and, mm. and hopefully they will hire you all the time because I always like to hire my hairdresser. Mm. I, you know, if they, if I get on a show and they say they have the hairdresser already and I go, no, you don't, not if you want me. Yeah. And depending on who it was, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, I mean, all that design work and getting that balance right, you've got to be able to communicate yeah. and work together. Yeah. Because it can just throw everything out of whack. You can be like, oh, I've done this amazing makeup, and then the hair happens, and you're like, what? <laughs> Weren't you watching? Did you see what they were doing? Yeah. <laughs> Did you guys not have a discussion about this before? Well, this is the way I want the hair to look. Like it or look. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But going back to the not having an apprenticeship program or a trainee junior, like working your way up over here, it was also through me a little bit because we are a little more similar to the UK, how we work in New Zealand with having, you know, starting as a trainee and working your way up. And I feel so lucky to have kind of come from that background because I was able to work under incredibly experienced designers as yeah. a trainee. There wasn't this wall up in between in between us. Um, so I was able to kind of get that training that I, you know, work my way up. It's awesome that you found a way around that to be able to do the PA thing, even though it's such a bummer that those days don't help them, right. you know, move towards. They don't help them get in the union. Yeah, yeah, which is a bummer, but it's, Hopefully one day something might shift. (laughs) Yeah. Well, all of those people that I trained are all in the union now. My last one is almost there now. Yeah. That's awesome. She's, uh, she's, and she didn't have the benefit of being on the set, but I help her with all of her projects. And I just got her a little picture just now that that, um, a friend of mine's doing. So she, and she got to hire two other people to work with her and I'm helping them with their prosthetics and all the stuff. So it's, you know, they still have the benefit of that because I'm still doing it. I'm just not on set anymore, you know? Yeah, that's awesome. I love it. Well, I thank you for everybody for 
helping all these people out. It's awesome. I like doing it. Well, I started the school, I guess, because I want I want everybody to be able to do it. I don't say that my way is the right way. I'm just saying there's so many other ways that are not the right way. You know, mm. there's all kinds of right ways of doing things. And I just want to share my way, which I feel will help facilitate. And it's like I learned my way from all the other people as well. You know, I didn't just come up with this on my own. It's just years of experience. So, yeah, exactly. You always learn something every time you work. Every time you work, you should be able to leave that room and say, God, I learned that today. I mean, I learned like when I'm at school, I learned things. They, they use they use some other product or they use some kind of technique. I went, well, where'd that come from? Mm-hmm. How'd you how'd you figure that out? You know, yeah. I'm like learning something every day. I go, that is so cool. You know, I know. Can you imagine how boring and dull it would be if you just weren't learning anything? I yeah. mean, it would be like, okay, I need to fully stop what I'm doing because. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <I'm done> now. <laughs> and V, what one person would you like to hear on the podcast? Ooh, wow. Ooh, I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> oh, but he won't do it. Never mind. <laughs> I love that. He won't do it. Never mind. Who are you going to say, though? Uh, are you, do- <laughs> you, you would be surprised how, well, you wouldn't probably be surprised, but how many people have said, I want to hear Rob Boutin. I'm like, that's never going to happen. That's you need exactly to. What yeah. <laughs> I'm like, it's never going to happen. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, that's exactly who I was going to say was Rob Bottin. That's why I said, oh, no, never mind. He's yeah, good. No, he's on everyone's wish list. Um, who would be good? You know, I've just recently started doing um, articles in Fangoria magazine. So I've done, first of all, they asked me to do myself, which was really weird interviewing myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I did myself and then I did Greg Canham. Mm-hmm. I think I just did Bill Corso. Mm-hmm. Bill Corso might be kind of fun. He's done so many different things. He would be kind of good to interview. And he, yeah. he he's a good talker. Yeah, I think so too. I, we've touched base about it, so we just need to... Just need to nail it down. I think it'll be awesome. But you know what? I wonder, actually, now that you're talking about Fangoria, because so many artists, when they're telling their story of how they started, it was, you know, interest was peaked through Fangoria magazines. Yes. And I kind of would love to speak to somebody who was – in the earlier stages of making that magazine, I don't know if they still work with it or if they're around or anything, but if they know what they're responsible for. <laughs> it's a new set of people that have Fangoria magazine now. Yeah. They're a good group, but they are, I believe they are a new set of people. Yeah. There might be one person there that was there. At the, I, I don't, you know what? I don't know. I could find out, I guess. You know who else might be interesting to talk to is Joel Harlow because he's done a lot of cool stuff too. Yes, I need to get Joel on here. I spoke to him for the, the Oscars special that I do each year. Mm-hmm. So for his um, nomination for Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. But yeah, he's done an awesome, awesome work. Also, um, and these are all, you, you realize these are all my ex-assistants, right? <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs> And how about John Blake? John Blake, yeah. John Blake would be great because he's he's diversified. He has like a whole wig company too and does facial hair pieces. And, you know, he was like really big in the Marvel world there. And now he's off, you know, doing other stuff. So yeah. he probably has some really cool stories to tell too. Awesome. Well, V, I'm so happy that we were able to make this work. I appreciate your time and I've had so much fun talking to you and people are going to love this episode. So thank you so much. All right, Jamie. It was very nice talking to you. Thank you very much, dear. Thank you. All right. Bye. 
Okay, Last Looks crew, thanks for listening. And remember, if you love it, share it. A quick scroll down and you'll find our show notes. Or maybe you'd like to give your support and leave a five-star review. Go on, I know you want to. Search The Last Looks podcast on Instagram, Facebook, or TikTok, whichever one tickles your fancy. And a massive shout out to the husband, Brett Stanley. Without his patience and tech support, this whole podcast situation simply does not happen and cheers to Liliana Rose for her fabulous voice acting talents okay last looks crew that's a wrap for me I don't need to be told twice to get out of here so bye I'll catch you on the flip side that's a wrap people